Today we're in Mark chapter 12. If you have your own copy of God's Word, we're going to be in verse 28 through 34. So you can follow along on your, your Bible or on the screen. But let's hear God's Word together today. It says this, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, being Jesus, answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our, Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, and you have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and the power it has in our lives. God, thank you for the clear teachings that Jesus came to give us and the way he taught so that we could understand you and know you better. God, even as we just sang, we'd, we'd give all we have to know you. We, we want to know you because there is nobody like you. There's none beside you. And so, God, we thank you for the way your word um, gives us that opportunity to know you. Lord, we pray that the better we know you, even as we hear your word proclaimed now, the more our lives would mirror yours. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. We are wired as people, uh, I believe, to, to desire things to be simple. Do we not? We like to take complex things and try to, try to boil it down, try to get it simplified. We like things to be simple, like the acronym, acronym KISS, keep things simple. Uh, keep it simple, silly. Isn't that what it is? Yeah, something like that. And uh, unfortunately, though, um, lots of our problems aren't simple, right? We, we want things to be simple, but solving problems many times is complicated. For example, putting light in this room or rooms like it. It's not very simple, is it? I'm going to act like I know what I'm talking about. Of course, I don't. But these bulbs, uh, from what I gather, are fluorescent. And the physics behind that is that there's some kind of gas in there that when electricity is applied to it makes light happen, right? That's what I Google tells me at least. And to get, to get electricity there required somebody who knew what they were doing to run wires all throughout this building and then to a panel on the back side over there. And that's where electricity comes through the building and gets to all these places at the same time. But to get electricity to that spot required a whole complex network that I have no idea how it happens. There's this power grid, and I assume that there's a power station somewhere that's putting electricity onto some grid, and, and all these places around are able to access it. And all the complex pieces that took place to solve the problem of there's no windows in here, and yet we want to be able to see our Bibles, right? A simple problem. We want to be able to see. The solution was very complicated. And yet, it isn't actually that complicated, is it? You just walk in and hit the switch, right? Because somebody who knew the complex problem made it simple for us. Praise God for electricians, because <laughs> I don't know how that works. But I'm really thankful that I get to walk in this building and bloop, 
flip a switch, and the problem is solved. There's a complex problem, and experts figured it out. And what they did was they took something complicated and they made it really simple so that the average person, even my three-year-old, can reach up and she can solve the problem of there being dark coming to the light. That happens in countless ways all the time, right? Medical doctors study and study and study, and they're able to diagnose your problems, and they're able to give you a few steps and hopefully lead toward a solution or give you some tips about how to stay healthy so you don't get unhealthy. Lawyers take all this study, all this time, read all these things to understand the complex laws of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, any state or, or nation or whatever else to make it really simple like, hey, I want to own a house. Okay, sign these papers a hundred times. All you have to do is your name. So all you got to know is your name and then make your payments every month and you get a house. Like, that's how it works. Like, they made something complex, very simple. That's the beauty. That's the job an expert has. Take the complex and make it simple. One such complex thing is the first two-thirds of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. And in the first century world, that what they only, you know, they, only, they didn't call it the Old Testament because that's all they had, just the Torah and the writings. Um, the, the, the religious leaders of that day, scribes and Pharisees, they, by their count, there were over 600 commands in what we call the Old Testament, especially in the Torah. 600 commands in the Torah. And so these religious experts were often tasked with this job. Hey, you are experts. Can you simplify this for me? Because over 600 commands, I don't know whether to walk out my door this way or that way. Like, can you give me some guidance? Because I can't remember 600 things. One of the ways religious experts did this in Jesus' day was to talk about the, the weightier matters, the heavier matters of the law and the lighter matters of the law. So Jesus uh, apparently followed that, that reasoning because places like Matthew 22, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So Jesus says both these things are in the law. You should give a tenth all the way down to your spices to the temple, and you should practice justice. But if you are uh, neglecting the orphan and the widow, but you're bringing your, your dill to the temple, you've got something off balance here. There is something that is more important. So you see what he's doing? He's taking complex and he's bringing order to it, some simplicity. But even beyond that, another way of handling it, the religious experts, they would, they would often be asked, multiple times we have this in history, they'd be asked, hey, what's out of all this, what's the most important? Like if you really had to boil down all 600 of those, what is the most important? That's the question Jesus gets asked in Mark 12, 28. And this comes in a, a series of questions uh, in Mark chapter 12 that are all, all aimed at Jesus. He was asked about the authority of uh, his, his authority. He's asked about taxes. Last week we saw he's asked about the resurrection. All of those questions were trying to trip him up, trying to make him stumble and, and somehow mess up in his words. But this question is a little bit different. If you're reading through Mark 12, you notice this scribe doesn't have, seem to have any bad intentions. Everybody else was trying to get Jesus. This guy genuinely seemed to be curious and want to learn and grow. And Jesus seemed to sense his genuineness because this is the first time he doesn't rebuke the person asking him a question. He, by, by talking with him, he said, that's a good question to ask. He is affirming this is a good thinking. The scribe generally wants to know. And he answers well when Jesus answers well, and they have a good dialogue from it. So he asks, what what's the most important? What's the, what's the top importance uh, of commands? 
There's a few other times that are recorded in, in kind of literature around Jesus, around the Bible, around this time, that I thought were pretty interesting. One time, uh, a rabbi named Hillel, who lived 20 years before Jesus, was asked, this is how he was asked the question, teach the whole Torah while I'm standing on one leg. <laughs> it was like he was saying, can you take all 600 and something commands and can you summarize them in the amount of time that I'm, I can balance like this? It's his way of saying, can you simplify it down for me? That, that rabbi gave kind of what is sort of a negative version of Jesus' golden rule. He said, what you would not want done to you, do not, be done, do not do that to your neighbor. So that was the way he summarized, that rabbi summarized all the commands. Other rabbis gave other good, good answers, but Jesus, the combination he gives, what we, what we look at now is the first and second greatest commandments. That was unique. Nobody had done this. And everybody since then quotes Jesus. So Jesus uniquely answers the question. It was not a unique question, but his answer was unique. And so many of us now are, fa are, this, are familiar with this famous answer to what is the most important commandments. Jesus says, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I appreciate simplicity, Jesus, because I have read the Old Testament. And it can be hard sometimes to kind of boil down what, what is the most important. So I appreciate his simplicity. The scribe who, who he's talking to agreed with him and said, Yes, loving God, loving people is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe sees, yes, he, he affirms that and says, all the Levitical laws about how you should sacrifice and be pure and, and all these things, they were really about these two things, loving God and loving neighbor. Sometimes understanding the Bible is hard, and sometimes it's pretty straightforward. And as a pastor who preaches on the Bible a lot, I appreciate the straightforward passages. <laughs> it's good sometimes to read a passage and go, yeah, we get it, right? Sometimes you've got to dig. Like you've got you to gotta figure out what these words mean and why they're, you know, figure out the context and what's going on. You read this and you go, yeah, I get it. Love God, love neighbor. That was Jesus' point. Praise God that he gives us some, some simple answers sometimes, right? And if, if you're, if you're a, a, a fill-in-the-blank person, you can go ahead and fill in the second and third one. It's going to be love God, love people, right? That's simple. It's easy. It's straightforward. Some of you go to sleep after you finish all your blanks, so just hang with me. I'm going to hold off on giving you the first one so you're not asleep yet, okay? But, but that's where we're going. This isn't difficult. The difficulty here is not in understanding what Jesus had to say. We see it. It's simple, straightforward. Love God, love people. But as soon as we say, praise God, I understand it, if you really do understand it, our very next statement will be, oh God, please help me obey it. The understanding here isn't complicated. The obedience, well, now that's a different story. Love God. Love people. Have you met people? <laughs> this is not a straightforward thing. It is hard, especially when you actually hear what he said. Now, I am simplifying Jesus' already simple answer when I say love God and love people, right? But he said it this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. Whatever else is going on there, he says the word all four times, so I think I get it clearly. It's about all, which is hard. All of me? 
Well, what about the times when I want to do things my way? Everything is about glorifying God. Everything is about loving God and loving your neighbor, all of them, as ourselves. As in like equal to the way I look out for my own priorities and look out for my own desires and interests. I'm supposed to love other people that way. It's harder than that even. In Luke's gospel, when he records a time when Jesus has asked this question, the person he was talking through kind of weaseled in another question. He's like, okay, love God, love neighbor, but who's my neighbor? You see how it's like an out? He's trying to get out of it. That's where Jesus gives the, the parable, as we know, as the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you know that story, the, the point of that was Jews and Samaritans didn't get, did not get along, and the Samaritan loved the Jews. So he's saying your neighbor includes even up to your enemies, not just the people that look like you or talk like you or friends with you, all the way past all them and all the way to your enemies. So yeah, loving neighbor is pretty hard when you realize what Jesus was saying. How am I supposed to love God that way? How am I supposed to love people that way? Simple is good. I'm so grateful. Jesus simplified all the Old Testament for us. But simple doesn't mean easy. Simple can be really challenging. How? How do we actually love God and love people? How do we actually, especially with any kind of consistency or regularity, how do we actually begin to love God and love people? Because people get on fire for a while, right? There's some enthusiasm Something happens in your life where you're seeking after the Lord and, and this seems like a, 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 as, as simple as walking, as simple as breathing, where you're saying, yes, today I, I'm on fire for the Lord and I want to know Him and I'm seeking Him and everybody I'm around, I'm trying to bless them for a while. But how do you sustain that? How do you keep going for decades if God so chooses to give us that long in this life and He doesn't return? How do you sustain loving God with everything and loving everybody you come into contact with like you would love yourself. As you read that, I think that's the real tension of this passage. It's not what he says. It's how to actually do it. But thankfully, Jesus also gives us a word on the how. I think it starts with where Jesus starts. Did you notice what he started with? When he asked, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus' first words weren't a commandment. Well, I guess here is kind of a command, but the first point was this. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's not a, that's not a commandment. That's a statement. The grammar people out there with teachers that talk about imperatives, tell you something to do. An indicative is just a truth, just a statement. He gives an indicative. He gives a statement, not a command first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He didn't start with a command to, to obey. He starts with a description of who God is. So I think this is the key to this passage. You understand it. Love God, love people. That's, that's the point. But if you're going to do that, you have to start with knowing God. Know God. Before you can love God, before you can love people, you've got to know God. And if you truly know God, the natural overflow, the, the outpouring of your heart will be to love God in return and love the people that He has put on this earth who are created in His image. But if we start with just trying to love people out of our own strength, we'll never do it, at least not for very long, especially when you get to the enemy category. It's going to require some supernatural power to love your spouse for decades, to love your kids when they're cranky, to love your enemies when they curse you and hate you. 
And if you just start with your own strength, you'll never do it. And if you start with trying to love God with just whatever you can come up with, you'll never make it. But if you start with knowing God, there's the source. There's the source for the power. Before you ever be able to love God or love people, you have to know God. Know God, love God, love people. That order matters. If you don't know Him, you'll have a hard time loving Him. And if you don't know Him and you don't love Him, you'll have a hard time loving other people. What does Jesus say about how, how is He saying we, we know God? Uh, how, how, how do we come to love God? We come by, by knowing Him. And this is, this is the pattern all, all through Scripture. Take a few, uh, last year, I guess, we studied the Ten Commandments. How does the Ten Commandments start? It doesn't start with a commandment. It starts with a, an, an indicative. Again, a statement about who Jesus is. I mean, about who God is. In Exodus chapter 20, when, when Moses goes to give the law, give the Ten Commandments, it says, God all spoke all these words and He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You see the same pattern? Who He is followed by our obedience to Him. If you don't recognize what God has already done, bringing them out of slavery, bringing us out of captivity, saving us, then you'll never love Him. But if you see what He has done, that He took the first step, if you see His character and His nature, it changes everything. Jesus is quoting here in Mark 12. He's quoting Deuteronomy 4, uh, 6, 4, and 5 that Caitlin read for us a minute ago. That Jewish people in Jesus' day would have quoted morning and night. This is known as the Shema, which is just the Hebrew word for hear, the very first word in that passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Still today, if you're in Israel, you find this, this Hebrew letter that kind of looks like a W. It's the first letter out of that word Shema, and it's everywhere. And you can buy these little things to put in your doorpost, because you heard, as Caitlin read that, when you, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he says, Take this, teach it to your children, talk about it as you go, put it on your doorframe. He's saying, You want to be thinking about this morning, noon, and night. And so you can get this little W-looking letter, a shin, and stick it to your doorframe as a way of remembering day in and day out, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That the Hebrew, I mean, the Jewish people would have repeated that morning and night as a way of sinking that truth deep into their hearts. And, and I think for some of us that have kind of pushed against kind of the liturgical and uh, ancient ways of doing things where we don't want to do anything formulaic or, or, or ritualistic, and there's a good heart there, but we miss sometimes and not memorizing and not repeating things over and over again. We miss the opportunity to push something deep in our souls. A Jewish person in the first century would have had this deeply planted in them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's where Jesus starts. He starts with who God is. And do you hear how, that's, how that describes God? Do you hear the description of God there? Here, he says, don't miss this. Listen, pay attention. English, Mark 12, um, 29, Deuteronomy 6, 4, it just says Lord in both places. And the Old Testament language, Hebrew, uh, would have said Yahweh. You may have heard that name, Yahweh. That was God's name that He gave to His people in Exodus. We read it earlier, but we hear about it in Exodus. When God sends Moses back to, to Egypt to go and deliver the people from captivity, Moses says, okay, I'll go, but uh, when I go, who do I tell them sent me? Because they'd have had all kinds of gods in Egypt. Which God is it? And God says, I am who I am. The Old Testament Hebrew language built this name Yahweh off of that verb for just I am. Who sent you? 
I am sent you. The God who is forever and eternal. The God, there's no, nobody before him or after him. He has always been. This is Yahweh. This is the Lord, the one true God. And there is no other like him. He always has been, always will be. God is not some distant or arbitrary deity. He is, a God who is, he is the God who has spoken into history, has been redeeming and restoring his people ever since the fall. This is the God who has built a covenantal relationship with his people. To identify himself as Yahweh is to remember all the times God has shown up to help his people. Prophet after prophet, king after king, redeeming from Israel, redeeming from Babylon. Time and time again, God has shown up because he has made a covenant with his people. Do you know how much God has pursued us as a broken people? Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh, he is your God. He is the one who has pursued and loved his people from the beginning of time. Do you know how great our God is? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's just one God. He has no rivals, no equals. There's not somebody else in competition with God that might dethrone him if the, the balance of the universe gets knocked off a little bit. No, he has no rivals. There is nobody like him, nobody even close to him. Of course, in the ancient world, Israel, Egypt, Rome, they'd have lived in this world where they, they believed it poly, had a polytheistic religion. There's a God for the Nile River, there's a God for the sun, there's a God for fertility, and all these kinds of things. So we may read this and say, of course there's only one God. Everybody believes that. Muslims believe that. Jews believe that. We believe that. What's revolutionary about that? Well, let me ask you this. Do you serve God all the time like He's the only God of your life? We struggle with this just as much as the Egyptians did, just as much as the Romans did. We just don't label all those things as Zeus or whatever else it may be. We serve our career. We serve our family. We serve other things around us as if they were the God over our lives. We all, no matter what religion, country, state you come from, time period in history, we all have to be reminded time and time again, there is just one God. There is one being over all our lives who is worthy of our attention and adoration and focus above all else. There is only one God all the way down to our desires, all the way down to our feelings. We love God above all else. We love Him. That's an interesting word though, isn't it? Love can mean a lot of things, can it? We love our spouse with like a deep desire and affection. And we love sunny days and sunrises and a good hamburger. <laughs> and we use the same word, and that's strange. When the Bible talks about love, in this case, loving God, it means more than just something you kind of enjoy, like a good hamburger. It's about a deep, deep affection and loyalty and commitment. It includes your affections and your emotions, but it is not limited to them, as if your commitment to God would ebb and flow with how you're feeling today. There is a covenantal commitment we're making to God when we say we love Him. To know God is to love Him. Do you know Him? Do you love Him? He is our God. Behold, here is Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is He our God? Lord, our God? Is He your God? Do you know Him? Do you love Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? 
Yahweh, the one true God, has made a relationship with His people and He has offered it to us through His Son. But that doesn't mean everybody knows Him. Do you know Him? He's our God. Is He your God? Do you have a relationship with Him? Here, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Because if you know Him, it no doubt will lead to loving Him. This pattern is true in all, all other kinds of relationship. The more we get to know somebody, the better we can love them, right? If you, if you don't know somebody well, but you want to be kind to them, and you go to a, you know, Walmart or something and buy a, a card off the, the rack, and you put a, a, a gift card in it to a, a chain restaurant and give it to them, that is love. That is a very generous thing to do. It's very kind. It's out of your way. It's loving your neighbor. And yet, if you know a couple really well, and you know that this, this one particular restaurant is maybe their first date restaurant or where they got engaged, and, and you not just buy a card, but you, you write a note and say, hey, I know your, your first anniversary, your 50th anniversary is, is this coming week. And this, I remember this is where you went on that special date or that, where you got engaged, and you give that to the couple, how much more love does that speak? This could be the same amount of money spent, but because you know them, you can love them better. It is great to buy your wife flowers. We should all do that way more often. But if you know she's been thinking about a special vacation spot or, or you know, she's wanted to trade in her car for decades and this, she's had her eye on this one car or, or there's just this, this, this one piece of jewelry she's thought about or something that you know specific to her that she's been thinking about. You bring the flowers too. I mean, you know, that's not going to hurt you. But if you, can, if you can find a way to do something personal, how much more does that communicate love? Because it shows that you, you know them. The more you know about somebody, the better you can love them. And when it comes to the Lord, the better you know Him, the more you're going to love Him. Right? The better you know Him, the more you're going to love Him. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is just one Lord. There is just one God. And when you come to know Him, you will see His sacrificial love on your behalf. Not only did He send prophet, priest, and king time and time again through the Old Testament, He sent His only Son, the perfect, ultimate prophet, priest, and king, to die in your place. He came to live the perfect life and take on the penalty you and I deserve for our disobedience to Him. And when He died, He didn't die for friends. On the cross, He had no friends. His disciples had rejected Him. The Roman guards had crucified Him. And He was on the cross and He said, Lord, forgive them. Forgive us. We put you there. He died for His enemies. There is no greater love than this that somebody would lay down His life. And He did it, not for friends, but for the very people who had rejected Him, which is me and you, every time we sin. There is no greater love than that. Because the ultimate, supreme, infinite being gave up His very self so that we could know Him. That's the greatest love story ever in history. And the more you know Him, the more you know that story, the more you know the depths of the gospel, it changes what goes on in our hearts and gives us the capacity to love. I heard a, a message this week from um, John Piper. I think it was back from the 90s. But uh, in Isaiah, he talked about Isaiah 12, 3 and 4, which says this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. 
And Piper talked about daily going to the well of salvation, drawing water time and time again, being reminded of the good news of the gospel, being reminded of your salvation, being reminded and learning and growing deeper, going deeper in that well, going after well after well, learning and knowing him better and better. And what happens when you know him? Verse 4, and you will say, draw the water and you will say, draw the water and you will say. It leads to proclamation. It leads, leads to worship. It leads to telling other people about him. The more you know him, the more you love him and you want to share him with other people. Do you know the Lord? Because if you do, the most natural thing will be the overflow of your heart into loving God. Loving God and loving people, that's really hard. But if you start with knowing God, the flow will come a lot easier. It doesn't mean it's automatic. It doesn't mean it's the progression is, is robotic. It's not that you study, you know, you come to know God and the next day you just, boom, you are just the most loving person imaginable, right? No, it's not robot, robotic. If it was, then Jesus wouldn't have had to command us to do it. He still had to command us. Apparently, we still have to listen. We still have to grow. We have to get more obedient. If it was just, you, could, you, get, you get to know the Lord Jesus on day one, and that's it, then he wouldn't say anything else. He would just say, come to know me. But apparently, we need to be told, we need to be commanded to follow him. Just like Jesus, in the last, right before he ascended back to heaven, he told his disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that's about our conversion. Teaching people about Jesus who don't know about him. When they repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, we baptize them and say, this is a new person in Christ. But that's not the only thing Jesus said that day, was it? He also said, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus commanded a lot of things, so there's a lot for us to learn. Praise God, he summarized it for us, right? Love God, love neighbor. But he did have to command it. So when you come to know God, there is a step of obedience. But that obedience will flow naturally. Not easily, but there's a natural progression. The better you know him, the more you want to love him, and the more you want to love other people. So it's worth us pushing in just a couple minutes a little bit deeper into those two commands. If we know God, then we will love God and love people. So that first command is love God. How? What does that mean? With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. As we said, the clear emphasis there, all, everything, all we have. And if you're tracking through Mark, you know this is consistent with everything he said to this point. Back to verse 17 of chapter 12, render Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God's the things that are God's. We talked about the coin as the image of Caesar. So you give, Jesus, give Caesar the coin. What's made in the image of God? We are. So we give all of ourselves to God. Same thing here. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's going to say it again. I'm going to give you a tip. Next week, verse 44, talking about the woman uh, who gave two small copper coins at the temple. What did, she, what did he say about her? Jesus said, she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She gave it all to God. This is the consistent theme of the New Testament. God is not asking for you just to give him, you know, a little bit here, 5, 10% of your life, and then give the rest of your life how you want. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are all in. We are all in. Brad Garrison specifically asked me not to quote Dabo Sweeney as saying all in, but I'm convinced Dabo did not come up with that. I'm sure somebody else did. We are all in for the Lord. Loving God is about being all in, full and complete love to God. Love is the complicated, beautiful four-letter word. It's, we are all in for God. Now, when he says heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think probably 
These are our ways of describing who we are. He, he, these are overlapping ideas, overlapping parts of us. It's a little bit kind of like we would say, you know, you're the hands and the feet of the church. We don't literally mean that if you weren't doing something that required both walking and something with your hands, you're not doing it. We just say hands and feet is a way of saying that you're going out and you're doing it, right? So heart, soul, mind, and strength is about all of you, right? So, it, I mean, we can dive a little bit into that. We don't want to get too committed to the, to the you know, details of this. But if, you, if it's something's from your heart, if something's that you're, you know, that's the core of who you are, right? Your passions, what you're, what you're most passionate about. You all got passions, right? You, what's the thing you could talk about? If I just push start on you, what could you talk about for 30 minutes? You know, is it your sports team, your hobbies, your golf, your whatever career? You've got things you're passionate about, and that's good. Are you loving God with your passions, with your heart? And is the thing you are most passionate about God? Could we push the start button about God for you and you talk for 30 minutes? That's not just a pastor's job. We're called to equip the saints. We're hoping to help you be able to talk about God. Are you passionate about the Lord? If we come and push the right button for you, can you overflow with love for the Lord? Loving God with all your heart and soul is deep within me. The thing I care about most above everything else is that I care about the Lord. If you know Him, if you really know Him, that'll flow naturally. You want to know Him and be passionate about Him. Soul is a you know, spiritual sense, not in a vague, like, new age way, but, but the, the really who I am is that I'm loving God with that. Loving God with our, our mind. And you notice that one's not in Deuteronomy 6, so we're not exactly sure why Jesus put this one in there, but Jesus says loving God with our mind is important. He called us to be disciples. You know what disciples do? They study with their mind, teaching all that He has commanded. That's going to take some learning. Some of us graduated high school, closed a book, and said, I don't want to open another one ever again. At least open one, you know, this one. That's enough. I don't, there's no command to do any others. We have the privilege of having it translated in our language. So many generations and cultures have never had that. There are other good books out there, by the way, but read this one, most importantly. Read the Word, be a disciple, love God, study His Word. It's worth the mental energy to know Him. To be a disciple means to study God with our mind and effort and our strength, our will, our capacity, our power to act. As James would say, don't be just a hearer of the Word, be a doer of the Word. Put it to work. Let it go to motion. Have actions in your life. If you are lazy and doing as little as possible, be hard to say that you're loving God with your strength. This is a word of effort and energy. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Like every other question in Mark chapter 12, Jesus doesn't just answer the question. He goes one step further. Pay taxes to Caesar? Yes. And give everything to God. What was the seal about the resurrection? Well, I'm going to answer your question about the resurrection, and I'm going to push a little further. So it is here. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. I'm going to push a little further. Second commandment? Love neighbor. He keeps going, pushing further so we can understand him better. Know God, love God, love people. He quotes Leviticus 19, 18, and again, the order matters. You will never be able to love people like they deserve to be loved, like God wants you to love them, if you don't know God first and love him above everything else. But if you do, the supernatural thing that happens in you is you start seeing people not as annoying. I mean, sometimes, you know, but... We don't see them as annoying. We don't see them as out to get us. We don't see them as primarily whatever you want to call them. You see people like God sees them, which is created in His image 
and deeply broken by sin and the effects of this world. Some of their own decisions and some decisions of others. And if you can see people that way, it radically transforms how we act toward them. If we love God and love, if we know God and we love God, we begin to love people. Sometimes it takes a lot of work, but God can work in mighty ways when we love our neighbors, near and far, friend and foe. Some people take this and say, well, love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself, so make sure you first focus on loving yourself. And that is a, a modern self-esteem approach applied back onto the Bible that I don't think the New Testament would have known anything about. Not that you shouldn't love yourself, but the Bible's view of this, like uh, Ephesians 5.29, uh, says, For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. We, we all know what it like, looks like to take care of ourselves, and there are all kinds of problems that come. We know mental illness is so dangerous. So yes, if you've got a problem with that, we, there, there's a place of help there. But if you, if you proclaim this verse as primarily, go love yourself and then we'll figure everything else out, then you've, you've inverted the problem. <laughs> you know, you've inverted the verse. The point is, go out and love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. When Jesus says that, and the scribe echoes back, yes, you are right, and he affirms it, Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom. He's saying, you, you're right here. You understand what it means to follow Jesus. But he's also pressing him a little bit there and saying, are you going to come follow? Which way is it going to be? We don't get his answer, but I wonder if, if you'd be willing to answer for you. Here's the, here's the greatest commandments, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is nobody like him. Do you know the Lord? If so, he invites you to love him and to love people. And if you're that far, then you are not far from the kingdom. But there's one more step. Actually follow. Actually go. Actually live in obedience to him. And that's the opportunity we have today. I pray that you know him. I pray that you know the life that we have through the resurrection. We celebrated last Sunday an empty tomb, and we gather every Sunday in remembrance and celebration of that same empty tomb. It's still empty, and He's still alive. And if you know Him, it changes everything about you. I pray, you to know, pray that you would know Him, and you would love Him, and you love other people. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the grace You have given us in giving us clear teachings from Your Word of what it means to be Your disciple. Father, we, we confess there are so many times that we do not love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, or strength. And Father, we thank you that you have given us grace, that we are not granted access to you because of what we've accomplished. But because of what Jesus did, you come, you change our hearts, you transform us so that we can actually walk in obedience. God, forgive us and help us to follow you with our whole, whole hearts. Lord, I pray that even this week that as we go about uh, our jobs, our tasks, times, our family, whatever is before us, God, I pray that our priorities would be right, that we'd love you above all else and we would see our neighbors, our kids, our spouses, our coworkers, people that are frustrating to us. God, we'd see them with the eyes like you do. And we'd love them like you do. I ask all this in a super natural, glorious, amazing name of Jesus Christ. Amen.